Welcome to the Human Rights Pulse podcast. Today, we are so lucky to have Priyanka Shirima with us, a human rights attorney from India who has committed her global career to human rights advocacy. I think if there's one story to sum up who Priyanka is, it's a story from when Kashmir was struck by a devastating earthquake, displacing 2.8 million and killing over 80,000. Priyanka was 25 years old. She left where she was working as an attorney in Delhi and moved herself to the center of the destruction, working her way through disaster-struck villages and bringing 800 rehabilitation claims to the high court. She went on to work as a lawyer and investigator in the international tribunals of Yugoslavia and Cambodia before founding two organizations, Action Against Prohibited Conduct and Nanshi. She now represents survivors of sexual harassment and discrimination and enables women to fight against such violence. Priyanka, welcome to the Human Rights Pulse podcast. Thank you for having me, Rosie. So happy to be here. So Priyanka, there is a lot we could talk about today, but we are going to focus on the hashtag Aid2 movement. Aid2 gained international attention in 2017 on the back of the Me Too movement, shedding light on the fact that sexual harassment was, was widespread within the United Nations and other international aid organizations. Priyanka, you've gone from working within the United Nations to representing those who have faced harassment within it. Tell me about that transition, about action against prohibited conduct and the realization, I suppose, that this would become your full-time commitment. Great question, Rosie. So I started in the United Nations right after I finished my master's and I worked with them for nearly 10 years majority of those 10 years, I was also a staff union representative. Um, and eventually I was very close to burnout when I was in the Cambodia tribunal and I resigned in 2017. I moved to Cambridge to take up a Harvard fellowship called the Wasserstein Fellow in Residence. And while I was there, I was contacted by three separate women, all of whom didn't know me at all, asking for help in their cases of rape and sexual harassment. I was struck by these stories and the fact that I couldn't find lawyers to help and represent them. So AAPC is actually born not only of my own lived experience in the UN as a staff union representative and as a person who faced and reported harassment, but also on the basis of the clear need of the tens of thousands of civil servants who desperately need access to legal support and representation. My friends were sure at the time that when I started this, I would be declared persona non grata to the UN. But I hold firm that I do what I do because I deeply believe in and campaign the mandate of the UN. I believe they can do better. They must do better. And that is why we must hold them to account on their own promises of dignity and safety in the workplace. Mm, yeah, I, th I think it's so important, Priyanka, because... This isn't coming from a place of intent to to drive people away from their faith in the UN system. It's actually the opposite, right? You you want these organizations to be stronger and safer places for this next generation of human rights practitioners. And you know, this requires breaking this culture of silence. But unfortunately, at least in its current state, this 
process of seeking justice for the victims can be re-traumatizing and confusing and lengthy and ultimately lacking in satisfying resolution. Is that right? Can you break down this process for us um, and shed light on, on what victims must currently go through? So you are, you are quite right in saying that the legal process is almost always re-traumatizing. And because of the nature of the UN, and I should say not just the UN, all international organizations, um, they tend to be quite concerned with their reputations. And because of that, the process tends to be confidential, difficult to navigate, and the process is not very transparent. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a lack of acknowledgement that no matter how good they are in preventing, the behavior that they're seeking to address persists mm -hmm. because it's a part of society. In every scope of the workplace, anywhere in the world, we still have to deal with misconduct in the mm -hmm. context of the workplace. The, the problem with the system is that it still relies heavily on victims and survivors to be the complainants in reporting and having the courage to speak up frequently against their colleagues or supervisors. The idea of allyship and bystander um, trainings have not yet been internalized in a manner that it effectively uh, assists in sharing that burden. Mm. Uh, another crucial problem is believing the complainant and believing the victim mm -hmm. has been somewhat misunderstood. It does not mean that the person is now to be taken at face value to have spoken, um, you know, what is unmitigated truth, but that in terms of response and all support services, you have to work with the presumption that the victim's version of the events are correct. And that yes, response yes. will allow you to provide support irrespective of the outcome of the legal, legal process. Mm -hmm. yeah. The legal process itself is failing just because of how, you know, uh, just opaque it is. It is deeply esoteric. Lawyers, other than, you know, people who are from the system, like myself and many others out there, they, they find it difficult to navigate it. So complainants find it hard to find representation. And even mm -hmm. when you finish this process, it can take, frankly, it can take two years uh, or more. In some cases, um, there are outlying cases of 15 years. You know, even at the end of that process, the restoration and restitution is nothing other than money. Mm -hmm. And that is not the reason why you joined this career, right? It is not why you came to work for the UN. Money was not the motivation. Of so course. unless there's true accountability, there can be really no justice, you know, for the complainants so there are two highly concerning things that that come out of what you've just said. Firstly, that the scale of the sexual violence and discrimination is so widespread. Um, and secondly, that the response to this issue is so inadequate. But can you see a better way to deal with the issue? Frankly, there needs to be... I mean, if I had my way, I would say break it down and build again. <laughs> um, just start over. The system was built back in the day when there was uh, the focus of, of the legal response was preserving the reputation uh, of the organization. Mm -hmm. The focus has now shifted, at least in language, mm. to being survivor-centered. But to take that old system and to mold it piecemeal, one policy at a time, is simply not going to be effective. Right. But the few 
we will lose whatever little protection we have is what gets us worried about, you know, dismantling and rebuilding. So we keep trying to plug the gaps and, and review and revise as we go along. So that is somewhat helpful. There's no doubt about it. Um, and I appreciate the efforts that are being put in to revise the relevant policies. I think the first step they need to take is truly involve survivors in the, in, the, in the prevention process. Their participation in the prevention and training process will actually let the, the response be driven um, by their trauma, by their experience of that trauma. Um, it'll educate every single first responder within the system on what the impact of that conduct has been and how can we make that better. Mm -hmm. We need to also open conversations and accept the fact that workplace misconduct is just the reality of the workplace, at least for now. Mm. And last but not the least, I will say that get civil society involved, get civil society organizations that have worked on these issues for ages, have the expertise, give them membership on the investigation panels and decision-making panels, give mm -hmm. independence to those panels. And I think truly it'll improve how um, survivors experience that system. Right. So there's there's all of these ways that the institutions can do better, but do you see this this change happening? Are they working quickly enough to ameliorate this, this institutionalized culture of sexual violence? I think there is... I think there is at least the intention to do it. We are yet to see the institutional will that can be best measured with the amount of funding allocated to it. So if mm -hmm. you speak to any of the principals involved in the response to sexual harassment, sexual abuse, or other forms of sexual violence, and even other forms of harassment and misconduct in international organizations, they will all tell you they are constantly underfunded. Mm -hmm. And if there's, if there's one way to be sure where the will is, um, is to look at the budgetary allocation, and that is not, you know, positive. There also seems to be a, a somewhat of a lack of understanding of the institutional level, the institutional depth of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that is not driven just by institutions. I think that is driven partly by the state actors who fund and ultimately govern these bodies through their representatives. I think right. there needs to be greater political support for this issue. Mm -hmm. um, and even the states that seemingly are supportive, activists who have been working in this space will tell you that they will happily trade off their support for prevention of sexual assault and sexual harassment at the workplace for something else with another state, you know, given if those two states have their parties or sorry, their citizens involved in this issue. Mm. And it also seems to be that it's an afterthought. Frequently, it's an afterthought. Right. Uh, and the result of that afterthought is inadequate preparedness uh, to respond. So I mm -hmm. think a lot of that is being addressed, uh, but, you know, not atypical for international organizations. The, the change is coming really in drips and drops. And I'm hoping... <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Okay, so... 
so that's the institutional level, but on an individual level, uh, one of the unfortunate aspects of the of the Me Too movement, particularly, is that those who work to deconstruct this culture of harassment become victims themselves of backlash and criticism. Have you observed this in the Aid Too movement or faced it yourself? I haven't faced it personally, though I anticipated it, as I said, when I started um, action against prohibited conduct, I presumed I'll be blacklisted. Um, and, you know, since then, I haven't obviously been interested in applying, but I'm, I'm not sure I'll be well received. But for the individuals who are making these complaints, who are speaking up against, you know, and more recently also against racism in their organizations, um, and the ones who are reporting harassment in general, um, other forms of discrimination, uh, and particularly sexual harassment, they frequently find their contracts not renewed. And I think that is definitely on the face of it, retaliation, um, and you know, embed, embeds the culture of silence. Mm. But overall, that is definitely part of the backlash that we do not want this issue brought up. This is an unnecessary absorption of our time and resources. Mm-hmm. Assessment is quite pervasive. The pushback, you know, it's public. We all know how uh, a huge number of international organizations earlier responded to it. Um, and ultimately, even though the general narratives, oh, they do it for the glory, or oh, they do it for the money, you know, these are from the corporate sector. We hear these for women a lot who complain. But in our sector, because that's not what lies at the end of that process, people presume you're doing it for promotions or you're doing it. Um, you know, to retaliate against a boss you don't like. Frankly, I'm yet to see somebody benefit from coming forward. So a lot of that is just unsubstantiated nonsense. And uh, the sooner we do away with that kind of conversations, the better. But unfortunately, that backlash at an individual level is very, very high. Mm. And these these narratives are so unhelpful to facilitating change even if it is incremental but you know I it certainly takes courage to break this culture of silence and and I I have faith that that it is starting to happen even if it is slowly so perhaps turning to to the creation of hope Priyanka we we talked before about how your work comes from a place of positive progress rather than pointing fingers or or trying to cause issues you know so so tell us about Nancy and the waves that it is creating in the international community. Uh, thank you for, uh, for reminding me about Nancy. So Nancy, I co-founded with uh, another former aid worker. Um, uh, she's been a professional in this space for 15 years. Her name is Nabila Nasser. And the two of us met essentially because she faced harassment at her organization. Now, the story was recently published by DevEx. And she originally came to me for legal help. Ultimately, she decided not to pursue the legal route because of the re-trauma she felt from that process. She wanted to do something about providing support for women like her. And she felt that having spoken to me, not just as a lawyer, but as a survivor myself of previous um, harassment and sexual harassment experiences, she felt that that kind of support is crucial. Just knowing that there's somebody who truly understands your experience and uh, identifies with the unique facets of the nonprofit world, the international aid and development sector, and to be understood why, you know, 
you would want to continue doing that even if you're facing harassment. The deep love we have for our jobs, you know, it comes from a place of commitment and we feel we are too strong to, to bow down to something like harassment. And so we wanted to create a place where survivors, uh, especially women, can come together not only to give each other support and um, you know an affirming uh, year, but also to to share ideas and strategies, to share tips and tricks, and to share information. But most of all, to to be able to redefine what it means to be a survivor, not to be quiet, but to come together and build a community, and hopefully, eventually, a movement that speaks for mm-hmm. itself. We hope to launch uh, Nanshi as a mobile app um, in, a, in a prototype version by June this year. We will open it up to early adopters and we hope to eventually test it and launch it for everybody in the course of the second half of 2021. And so we are very proud to be a tech startup for the nonprofit sector led from the global south. It's something that we take great, great pride in. Yes, and rightly so, because speaking to you, Priyanka, the the phrase comes to mind, be the change that you want to see in the world, as cliched as that is. And I think that this is so true of what you're doing and um, and of you as a person. So I suppose the final question for you then uh, is, what would you say to those at the start of their career who want to get involved in human rights? I would say just do it. I always say just do it. Um, I started this career because I knew when I was very young that I wanted to to do something that would have social impact. And I know so many of us are driven by that conviction that we can have some small impact in, in the world. So if you have that conviction and you believe you can make even the smallest difference on an issue that interests you, then just find any opportunity to do it. It doesn't have to become your career. It doesn't have to be full-time. It doesn't have to be this lifelong commitment like it is for me or it is for you, Rosie. Um, I think, you know, find ways to use that. I think it's the most rewarding use of your professional skill. You can do it just by taking one case on. You can do it by doing one volunteership or something. You don't have to make it your career. But if you do... I would say that don't worry about, you know, leading, you know, this particular step from, sorry, if you do decide to make it your career, then don't worry about it being linear or following a beaten path. I find that every human right defender has been a pioneer in their own right. Every story is different and every person I've met has had an impact somewhere in the world. It can be a tough job, but I think ultimately it makes you kinder and it makes you stronger. And on that note, I want to thank you, Priyanka, for joining us today on the Human Rights Pulse podcast. Um, If you would like to hear more about Action Against Prohibited Conduct and Nanshi, the links will be in the show notes. Um, But until next time, from me, Rosie Fowler, and the Human Rights Pulse team, thank you for listening and thank you, Priyanka. Thank you. Thank you.